This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I think, as uh, most of you know, uh, uh, pathology plays uh, a significant role uh, uh, in the diagnostic workup uh, of at least some of the patients with renal diseases, and uh, we are... We pathologists are in close communication with the nephrologists when uh, a biopsy is taken, and uh, uh, and uh, that communication is uh, pretty crucial. Uh, and uh, we think that uh, the reason that it's justified to bring something that is not necessarily mainstream to this uh, meeting, which is pathology. Um, is that there are lots of exciting things uh, happening in pathology no- nowadays, and uh, uh, these might have impact uh, the way we will uh, read uh, kidney biopsies uh, in the near future, uh, and the way we uh, might be able to communicate those uh, uh, results to you. So uh, let's go to the first slide. So. Uh, uh, during the first industrial revolution uh, in the early 19th century, they built uh, steam engines. But they also uh, uh, started to uh, uh, build uh, excellent quality microscopes. And, uh, and this, uh, this single uh, technological advancement uh, laid the foundation uh, for the uh, development of modern pathology. Uh, by the time uh, in uh, 1858, uh, uh, the uh, famous book of cellular pathology was published by a German pathologist named Wirka, who was widely regarded as the father of uh, modern pathology. Uh, it was uh, uh, rather obvious that uh, this, will, this uh, book might uh, become the harbinger of what was to come uh, which is that uh, uh, the uh, pathology will change from being uh, a descriptive, uh, gross, uh, organ-based pathology to cellular pathology. Uh, and indeed, for uh, ever since, uh, the, uh, uh, the microscope remained the uh, central uh, 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 player in the uh, pathologist's work. And uh, if you look at uh, the way we practice nowadays pathology, uh, uh, pretty much uh, across the globe, and this picture was taken yesterday at UCSF, the outfit uh, might have changed a little bit. Uh, There are more colors, and the mustache is slightly different. Uh, But overall, uh, it's pretty much the same way we look at the slides, we evaluate uh, those paraffin-embedded tissues that were fixed uh, in formaldehyde, pretty much the way as that formalin fixation was developed at the uh, turn of the 19th and 20th century. Uh, so, uh, so is there any difference? Well, to some extent, there was because there was uh, some uh, sig- there were some significant developments meantime, all uh, related to technological advancements, and those were the discovery of the electron microscopy, and approximately 35 years ago, uh, uh, the uh, the uh, 
widespread, uh, the start of the widespread use of the immunohistochemical technology. So the diagnostic armamentarium uh, broadened uh, significantly, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, I should say that 90%, 95% of the time, the pathologists look at these kind of slides, which are hematoxidin and eosin stain slides, and the pathologists are, are pretty well trained to recognize patterns. They, they do a good job serving the community uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, making the diagnosis. Um, uh, certainly, we are uh, further away from what, the, what pathology used to be in terms that we describe many new diseases. So by no means we are exactly the same, but I just want to emphasize once again that the approach didn't change the whole lot. So in spite of the fact that I, as a pathologist, believe that we are good, doing a good job, uh, there is certainly room for improvement. And the reason for that is that there are some shortcomings in pathology such as. Uh, there are issues of uh, reproducibility of the pathologic diagnosis. There, is, there are problems, uh, some problems with the precision, accuracy, the quantitation, and the, the pathology uh, interpretations are subjective. So uh, in, no matter what we do, they remain subjective. Uh, so how about this reproducibility issue? If you look at just uh, this uh, uh, graph on the left-hand side, you see that uh, there is significant discordance in the pathology interpretation in cancer classification uh, between uh, individual pathologists and the consensus opinions. Uh, so, uh, and this might have very significant ramifications uh, for the treatment. So there is certainly a need uh, to... Uh, uh, to fix these issues. So uh, we are in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution, uh, which is evolving, and this fourth industrial revolution is all about digitization, digital, digital, digital. And we already heard uh, from Dr. Fries today that, well, uh, maybe uh, if we have those clinical data digitally, maybe the life would be a little easier, and that's certainly true for pathology. If everything goes digital, we will be in a better shape. And the good news is that uh, everything that is related to this fourth industrial revolution, which is machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and even precision medicine is all very applicable to pathology, perhaps more applicable than many other things in medicine. Uh, so how would this be working? Well, uh, at the end of the day, uh, the old-fashioned microscope will be retired, and it might happen sooner than you would think, and everything is going to be digital. We will call it digital pathology. So what is digital pathology? Well, uh, well, before I say that, so what would be the, why would we need uh, digitization in pathology? There are many practical reasons. So if you ever uh, uh, visited a pathology department, you will see that the offices are uh, loaded with tons of uh, glass lights and the pathologists are hiding between those uh, uh, huge piles of slides. And the slides sometimes get lost. Uh, and then there is... Uh, uproar and uh, people are very unhappy and clinicians are terribly unhappy. So, uh, you know, that would be a pra practical ramifications because uh, those slides, those digital slides, at least theoretically, would never get lost. And, uh, and then there uh, would be an easier way to 
uh, to communicate with our uh, colleagues, to, uh, uh, to do consultations. Uh, but those are all practical ramifications. The real important thing, at least in my opinion, is that uh, uh, doing or practicing digital pathology might actually improve the way we practice pathology, that might improve the, uh, the speed of the diagnosis created and might improve the reproducibility of our work. So what is the outline of digital pathology? Well, we certainly need a scanner to start with, and though these slides are scanned and they are stored on a server, and then uh, they could be assessed by uh, pathologists in their offices, and then we can go outside the firewall and the uh, images can be assessed because this is a web, should be theoretically a web-based system. They could be assessed from uh, uh, all around the world, wherever we are. Uh, so what is our experience with digital pathology at UCSF? So we uh, started to work on digital pathology out of need. We have three hospitals, and we were thinking that, well, uh, we need to cover frozen section service for all three hospitals. So what if we uh, employ digital pathology and we uh, would be able to cover all three hospitals by a single pathologist instead of three pathologists three, uh, sitting uh, in those three hospitals? And that's exactly what we did. We purchased scanners, we build the infrastructure, and just a few words about the technology. Uh, so this is to some extent similar what happened in radiology, but at the same time strikingly different because those radiology images are minuscule small images, right? Uh, pathology host slide images are four gigabyte per uh, section, which is a huge amount of information, so we, we need to have a very different network uh, for the communication. Uh, but nevertheless, we were able to build this system, and this is the kind of images we can create in two minutes uh, with this uh, equipment that we have, and they are very high-quality images, uh, and we validated the entire system, and it's working wonderfully, and this is the very first uh, uh, system that was implemented in the United States for this particular purpose. Uh, and then just a few weeks ago, the FDA approved this uh, uh, platform for primary diagnosis. So now if we want to uh, use it for primary diagnosis, it would be uh, ready to go. Uh, so what do we do? Uh, what do we use this uh, system currently uh, at UCSF? Well, as I mentioned, we use it for frozen sections, for tumor boards, for consultation. And, and of course, most importantly, we validated it for the kidney, which is the most important organ, right? Uh, and uh, it's working very well, actually. Uh, and we can do slide reviews with the clinicians who are at a different hospital. Uh, in the future, we want to uh, uh, go ahead with the digitization, and we want to be fully digital within a few years. Um, and perhaps even more importantly, we want to employ computational pathology, uh, which is uh, very different from uh, digital pathology. So what is computational pathology? So I can tell you that... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a very easy concept because uh, if you ever had a cell phone that uh, wasn't a smartphone, then that cell phone was just a 
smartphone, right? Uh, the smartphone is a very different concept, and basically the computational pathology is a smartphone uh, that will be working uh, with lots of apps. So what kind of apps we uh, are hoping to to uh, to uh, to have uh, for digital pathology. Well, the apps would be first those apps that uh, would assess uh, tissue uh, findings, changes that pathologists are already looking for all the time, such as mitotic figures or helicobacter pylori in gastric biopsies. And the computers are very good finding those things, and they are very good quantitating. They will never miss that. So basically, this gets this can speed up the process and it could make it really high quality. Uh, but then the next step would be that let's feed the computer with 30,000 of images of cancer and tell the computer that, okay, go ahead and figure it out. Uh, let's see whether you can do better than what we are doing as of today. And that's exactly what we want to do. And there is a tremendous interest in the industry and the academia uh, from some of the companies might, you, uh, you might have heard about, such as Google and, and there are a few others. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be uh, the computational pathology, and, uh, and this is already the reality, and you will see in the news, and I just pulled this uh, a couple of days ago to show that uh, computer programs can actually identify cancer better than people, and these are news, and uh, some of them might be fake news, actually, but, uh, you know, some of them actually might be true. So, uh, this is coming. Uh, so what, what are the additional problems? So this takes us back to that piece uh, of uh, tissue that is formalin fixed and paraffin embedded. Uh, so we are evaluating these tissues, and even if we employ digital pathology, that, won't really, that will help, but it won't really change the equation terribly. Uh, we are underutilizing those tissues. There is lots of information there, so the question is, can we mine the, the information in those tissues better than what we are capable to do as of today? And if so, then how should we do that? Uh, there are a couple of additional considerations why would this be an important issue. For example, I mentioned that there is discordance between the primary pathology diagnosis and the consensus diagnosis. But the truth is that even the consensus diagnosis is not necessarily the right one. How do we know unless there is some sort of proof? So what we want to do, we want to uh, have, want to generate hard evidence uh, that would be uh, based on science rather than art, right? Because some people say that uh, pathologists are artists rather than scientists. So we want to change that notion. Uh, so what are those ancillary tissue-based assays that uh, will be uh, uh, targeting the tissues, and I refer to them as tissue mining. So these will be morphological, uh, uh, employing uh, morphologic and imaging technologies, uh, and they will be using uh, gene expression profiling and perhaps proteomics. So these new morphological assays should be, first of all, quantitative, uh, should be highly reproducible, should be based on multiplexing technologies such as uh, in-situ hybridization and immunofluorescence, and should definitely work on FFP. So why is that that it's so important that we have these multiplexing technologies? It's important because uh, if you think only of our field, which is 
kidney. When we take a biopsy, those kidneys are, those biopsies are pretty tiny, so we can't really cut 5,000 sections and uh, uh, evaluate one after the other for various markers. So we need to, to, to put them together, and that's actually uh, multiplexing. And then the other reason that is so important that these, these assays work on FFP, because that's how we store our tissues. Uh, there are warehouses filled with uh, FFP tissue, so if we can do this test, that would open uh, really opportunities that were never, ever uh, imaginable before. So, uh, so this is a coloring project, actually, this multiplexing. It works very nicely. So if you look at the, uh, this, uh, this uh, tissue, which shows an inflamed tissue, uh, there are multiple colors here. This is a multiplex immunofluorescent uh, uh, stain. And you see that there are some white dots, that's messenger RNA. There are some red stains, that CD3 positive cells, and there is the PD1 and the, the DEPI highlights the nuclei. So basically, the, uh, we generate these images first, and then we can analyze them using a computer. Uh, and uh, we can scan the entire biopsy, and this is what you will see. So you can kind of move from one page to the next, and then to the third page, and then uh, the computer once again, uh, because the computers are better than human beings, for doing certain things uh, can generate metrics. So this is the way we generate those metrics. So if you have the, uh, uh, let's say, a very single approach, uh, you have a single stain and these brown dots here are the inflammatory cells on the left-hand side. I wish I, okay, so I'm not sure how to, okay, here it is. Uh, Well, uh, doesn't seem to be working. Okay. Uh, so at any rate, uh, so you have the, you see those brown cells there, and we can the computer can measure the number of cells with high degree of precision, and this would be 100% reproducible no matter how many times we run this through the computer. Uh, and then we can uh, do the same thing with uh, our coloring project, where we have multiple markers uh, uh, visualized on the same section. And then we can measure, we can tell that how many CD8 positive cells are there or whatever our targets are. So these are the first two layers. So the, the very first layer was the old-fashioned approach, which is uh, we just uh, use our uh, good old microscope and uh, produce semi-quantitative data and do the reporting. And the next stage was that we replace that with uh, immunophenotyping and uh, being uh, quantitative. And then there is uh, uh, another approach when uh, we use these these very same formalin fixed paraffin embedded tissues and do gene profiling. So, uh, so what is new about this? Uh, well, uh, what is new about, it, uh, about this is that, at least historically, these formalin fixed paraffin embedded tissues were believed to be not suitable to do something like this, because when you fix uh, the tissues in formalin, the it fixes pretty valid tissues for morphological assessment, but the messenger RNA starts breaking down and you have little fragments. So uh, that fragmentation uh, uh, causes uh, or you know, makes it difficult to do gene expression profiling. But, uh, but there is this new technology and there are some others. So I'm showing you only this one that is called nanosting. So the nanosting uh, 
platform uh, uh, uses multiplexed color-coded uh, probes uh, for gene expression, and it works very well on RNA that is isolated from FFP tissue. So the way this might work, that you cut one section, you uh, evaluate that for light microscopy the old-fashioned way. The next section goes for the immunohistochemistry, which could be multiplexing, and the third section goes uh, for gene expression profiling. So you are looking at exactly the same tissue that uh, you are using for the additional uh, assessments rather than uh, collecting uh, uh, a different piece of tissue. Uh, And this uh, uh, platform uh, uses a technology that uh, is not associated with any amplification, and it's very, again, a very important because uh, this would be much more reliable in terms of quantitation. And I don't want to get uh, to spend a whole lot of time uh, in terms of uh, what, how this technology works, but the important thing is that they use very short uh, primers. So those short primers are going to be still specific for the targets, and they can uh, uh, amplify, the, uh, sorry, they can detect uh, the, the targets with high degree of certainty. Uh, so, uh, so the, the platform comes with a beautiful software that uh, makes the analysis very easy, and we did run a number of uh, uh, studies already, and uh, the technology is highly reliable. It's really, really a beautiful technology, and uh, it's easy to predict that this will have a major impact uh, on the uh, uh, way we assess uh, uh, FFP tissues. So here are a few examples of what kind of questions you can ask, and uh, this goes back to Dr. Vincenti's talk that uh, there is precision medicine, and we want to ask certain questions. So here is one question that we ask: that you know, what is is there any difference between the gene expression profiles uh, in the patients who have borderline? change in the biopsies versus ACR, and the answer is yes, there is. So we are analyzing those data, whether, you know, uh, whether we can uh, make a story of it. Uh, so the next uh, issue that we wanted to see, is there any, question, is there any difference between the gene expression uh, in patients with, uh, uh, who are on CNI and baliteceptin, and guess what there is. And there, there are a bunch of new genes that weren't so far described, uh, so we are getting very excited about this because, once again, this gives us a new tool. Uh, so, the, uh, so it comes back to the, uh, uh, to this, uh, closes this circle. So we have various tools that are available as of today that weren't available uh, uh, up until very recently, and we can cross-validate the data with these, uh, uh, that are generated with these various platforms, and we uh, can correlate it with the clinical outcomes. Uh, this is really a beauty, at least the way I see it. Uh, and uh, uh, as a closure, so, uh, so we are all very excited about this, and, uh, but there is only one thing that we are slightly worried that, you know, if everything goes fine and uh, we really uh, retire our, uh, our, uh, our uh, microscope, then uh, it's, it might be only the matter of time that uh, we uh, pathologists become obsolete as well. So with that, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.